Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast. Equipping leaders to live in Christ joyfully and serve Him faithfully. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Living Leadership Podcast. On this week's episode, we're going to be listening to the final of the three sessions that Mike Reeves gave at the 2014 Pastoral Refreshment Conference. As we've said in previous weeks, this audio was recorded live at the event, which means it's not quite of the quality that you might expect from other Living Leadership episodes, but we do hope that you'll bear with the quality to listen to the wonderful truths contained within it. I'm going to read uh, from Hebrews chapter 2 before Mike comes uh, to preach for us. I'll leave you guessing what version I'm using, uh, but we're going to read from verse 14. I won't give you a page number. Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered When he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Well, let's let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sharing with us what is most precious to you. You could not be more loving. Knowing him is our liberation and our joy. And we pray very simply now, Father, that through your word, you might help us to let go of our pride in ourselves and exchange it for pride in him, for his glory and in his name. Amen. We we come to this remarkable passage about the Son of God sharing the flesh and blood, the humanity of his people, becoming one of us and experiencing what it is to be weak and tempted. Now, what this does in Hebrews is it sets up the theme of Jesus as our great high priest for the rest of the book. Um, The high priest had to be of the flesh and blood of his people. That's the connection. Okay? The high priest had to be of the flesh and blood of his people. And the high priest theme is going to be big in Hebrews. And Hebrews really wants to make two things of this as the book rolls on. He's of our flesh and blood to be our high priest. Two particular reasons. First, he shared our humanity to be the high priest who, through his sacrifice, would destroy our death. Who would make propitiation for our sin, who would die in our place, who would atone for us, who would 
change our status and give us security before God. That's familiar ground. What is spoken of way less in evangelical circles, uh, perhaps simply in Christian circles at all, is this, the second theme that Hebrews draws out of Christ becoming our flesh and blood to become a high priest, is this. He was made like his brothers in every respect, not just to be a faithful high priest making atonement, but also so that he could be a merciful high priest. As verse 18 puts it, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. The idea gets picked up again more famously in chapter 4, verse 15, of course. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, brothers and sisters. We have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, I have never come across anyone who's dealt with that theme with the same pastoral genius as Thomas Goodwin. Uh, people haven't really heard of Goodwin these days, partly because he, he doesn't read very well after 400 years. He's got a hard read. Um, some of the Puritans are a doddle, but he's, he's hardish. Um, but he was a titan in his day. He was one of the great preachers of the 1600s. And he started out as a young man. He was born in 1600, started out in the 1620s as a young man dedicated to a ministry of battering consciences. <laughs> He then had a meltdown. And in that time, had a profound spiritual turnaround through hearing of the free grace of Jesus Christ. Talked to him, and he realized that a heart doesn't simply need to be shattered. It needs to be melted. And that is done by free grace. He came under the influence of the sunny-hearted Richard Sibbs, preacher in Cambridge in London. And Sibbs met this troubled young man and said to him, it's a famous bit of advice, but it's often used slightly loosely. He said to him, young man, if ever you would do good, you must preach the gospel and the free grace of God in Christ Jesus. Now, he'd been preaching for some seven, eight years when he heard that advice. He had not been preaching the free grace of God in Christ Jesus, the grace that liberates, frees, and melts hearts. But he did now. And Goodwin became, like Sibs, an affable preacher. And for the first time, he began to use his considerable intellectual <laughs> gifts no longer to patronize or intimidate his listeners, but actually to help them. And if you read his sermons still today, though they're a bit musty, dusty old language, you, you get that sense that he is 
like a kind brother taking you by the shoulder and walking you through the text, helping you to know Christ better. Now, Goodwin developed the conviction that in his day, this is the heyday of the Puritans, by the way, which many evangelicals look back on as the golden era of preaching in England. But Goodwin believed that in his day, Christ had simply not been taught well enough. Therefore, people simply did not truly love him deeply enough. And with natural idols crowding their brains, he was finding that the people he was speaking to were dreaming of a Christless, frightening God who they could not turn to. And so Goodwin set out to preach Christ to them in all his graciousness. Now, on this theme of Christ as the merciful high priest, Goodwin put together his most remarkable and perhaps unsurprisingly, his most popular work called The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth. It's actually there on the bookshelf, just called The Heart of Christ, in the middle of the book table if you want to read it. The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth. And his aim, he said in that, is this. He said his aim is the same as the end of Hebrews 2 and the end of Hebrews 4. He said his aim is to take our hands, take our hands and lay them upon Christ's breast and let us feel how his heart beats and his bowels yearn towards us, even though he is now in glory. The very scope of these words, he said, being manifestly to encourage believers against all that may discourage them from the consideration of Christ's heart towards them now in heaven. In other words, he wanted us to see through scripture how, for all Christ's heavenly majesty, seated on the throne, he's not become too high and mighty for us. He's not become aloof and unconcerned which is so easy to think, isn't it? You can think, well, he was the friend of tax collectors and sinners. So kind, so generous. And I'd love to have spent time with him then. But now, there he is, worshipped by all the angels. I just can't relate to that. He's too, too aloof. I, I, I could not approach him too holy, too glorious. And Goodwin makes the point, He's still the same man. There is a man sitting on the throne of heaven, the son of Mary, who sits there. There is a man sitting there at perfect peace with God. There's our salvation. And he is still just the same man. The same experiences of walking through those streets the same love for his friends, the same compassion for his people. None of that has changed. In fact, says Goodwin, his great capacious heart, now he's in glory, if anything, only beats more strongly for his people. Not less. 
And knowing this, said Goodwin, may hearten and encourage believers to come more boldly to the throne of grace when they shall know just how sweetly, how tenderly his heart, even though he's now in glory, is inclined towards us. Now, in particular, Goodwin argues two things stir Christ's compassion for us. Two things in particular. The first thing that stirs his heart for us is our afflictions. He is moved for us by our afflictions. He cares for us, pities us in them. I think that if I can step away from Goodwin for a moment, I think of something John Bunyan said on this. Um, John Bunyan, he was looking at Act 7. Um, and do you remember in Act 7, there's this moment where Stephen, he's just been giving this speech, and he's just about to be martyred, cruelly. And do you remember, just before he's killed, he looks up to heaven, and do you remember precisely what he sees? He says he sees something very unusual. He says he sees the Son of Man standing there, not sitting, standing there at the right hand of the throne. And Bunyan, if I couldn't remember, I'll try to remember how he says it. Bunyan says this, the Son of Man, all victorious, does normally sit in heaven, his work complete. But there are times when he stands. The sufferings of his people, says Bunyan, so move him that he stands. Stephen there is persecuted and Jesus is on his feet crying, Father, see my brother. There's the compassion of our high priest in all our afflictions. The ready, upstanding compassion and concern of our high priest. And Goodwin says something else stirs his compassion and this is even stronger. You I don't think you're going to believe it unless we see it there in the text, because this is stunning, absolutely stunning, what raises Jesus' compassion for us. I, Goodwin, he reads that famous section at the end of chapter 4. We usually leave it there, but it goes on. It goes on. Hebrews 5. Go straight on, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. 5.2. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset by weakness. Oh. The point is... Jesus is like us, we must be clear on this, in every way, that was the argument, in every way except sin, he's like us. And one of the reasons the high priest was chosen from among weak people, that this was one of his qualifications, he's chosen from among weak flesh and blood so that he could deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. So did he have compassion on them? That is, because he understood. 
He, he has that in himself. He, he knows what it's like. In other words, it is part of the job of the high priest to see those who are wayward, in other words, sinning, and to have compassion on them. Says Goodwin. He's saying Jesus then does not just have compassion on us in our troubles. He has compassion on us in our sin and failure. Here he says, Believer, your very sins move him more to pity than to anger. Fear not. Christ is so far from being provoked against you, all his anger, for he hates sin, he hates it, all his anger is turned upon your sin to ruin it. But yea, his pity is the more increased towards you, even as the heart of a father is to a child that has some loathsome disease. His hatred shall all fall, and that only upon the sin, to free you from it by its ruin and destruction. But his affections shall be the more drawn out to you, and this as much when you lie under sin as under any other affliction. Under any other affliction, fear not, he says, therefore, what shall separate us from Christ's He is saying sin is a sickness in a believer. Once it really defined my identity, but my identity is now to be a child of God. That is my identity. The sin that remains in me, and oh, it does remain in me, is a sickness in me. And fathers do not hate their children for being sick. Their hearts are moved towards their children. So when my girls are sick, I don't go, oh, get away from me. Absolutely not. I, I feel for them more. I, I hate the sickness that's causing their suffering. I'll, I'll destroy the sickness if I can. Oh, yeah. But if anything, my heart goes out to my girls more. So it is with God and his children. He will ruin sin. But, brothers and sisters, our, our Jesus is so kind that his first reaction when you sin is pity, compassion. And I wonder if sometimes you feel a reflection of that as you minister to others. You ever felt that? You're speaking to someone struggling with sin, and they won't let it go. Well, they can't let it go. And you're thinking, oh, my brother, my sister. You feel for them. Even though it's evil what they're doing, you feel for them. You see, when we sin, we want to run from him. But when we sin, Jesus wants to run to you, to help you, to heal you. And by the way, while the focus is on Christ's compassionate heart, Goodwin had no tolerance for the thought of imagining a 
kind and compassionate Christ appeasing a heartless father. Absolutely not. And so Goodwin says, Christ adds not one drop of love to the father's heart. For the father's heart is the source of it all. It is, in fact, it is by the spirit that the son's heart is stirred up with the father's own love. The son's beautiful, compassionate heart is the express image of his father's heart. That's who's in heaven for us. And what Goodwin realized as a pastor was that this loving compassion is exactly what will draw us back to Christ from sin. See, when I'm feeling guilty, I would not want to dare to go to a pitiless and cold God. I'm just going to run from him and decline into a spiritual sulk. But the beautiful heart of Christ wins mine. I think if that's really what he's like, if he's there with such compassion, I'll dare go back and I'll run. And that certainly was the case for Goodwin himself. On his deathbed, he said these words. Here were his last words, an 80-year-old man. He said, Christ cannot love me better than he does. I think I cannot love Christ better now than I do. Knowing Christ's love made him love Christ. Now, you know, I think there is a, a special lesson for leaders here. For the leader, our model leader, Jesus, his weakness did not disqualify him from leadership. Absolutely the opposite. His weakness precisely qualified him. He could not be the compassionate high priest unless he shared, shared the suffering and the temptation of his people. Weakness actually qualified him. And it's not just Jesus, in fact. Down through the centuries, you see God has used weak people. Now, I find out, I love reading biographies, but so often the biographies of great Christian leaders, pastors, preachers, paint over the weaknesses of those men and women. And that is a crippling shame. Because what it does is it means that I read of these infallible giants, and I feel, well, I know exactly why the Lord won't use me, because I'm just not awesome like that. And so I, I feel intimidated, rather encouraged by this great servant of Christ. What a shame. But if you probe, of course, you find they were all weak, very weak in their own different ways. I mentioned Martin Luther. Let me just explain that one. Martin Luther, <sighs> preaching such a gospel of hope, free life for the wicked. Martin Luther often cried himself to sleep. He, uh, he was overwhelmed by the weight of all that he faced, and he did face a lot. Um, overwhelmed by oppression, by nagging doubts. And what you see as you look at his story, it wasn't 
many years after the Reformation had got going, Luther was a physical wreck. He was battered down by concerns, by these doubts, by so much that he was facing. And perhaps the greatest weakness of all in Luther was the most surprising. Luther, the rediscoverer of salvation by free grace alone, right at the end of his life confessed this. He said, my temptation is this. I think I don't have a gracious God, said Luther. Now, that hits me because that's my greatest struggle too, actually. That's behind all my struggles. If I don't think he's gracious, I don't love him. And yet, I thank God for that, because Luther's greatest struggle made him strong there. Struggling so much with that made him a stronger minister of God's grace. Because he, he felt the problem so deeply, he needed to see the solution. He hadn't needed to delve more deeply into a solution that really works. God's leaders are always weak people. In fact, can I just tell you something that happened yesterday? Yesterday afternoon, I um, felt an urge to encourage a particular leader. Not here. Um, and I got in touch and in encouraged this brother. And what you need to know about him is he's, uh, he's a well-known, successful, apparently very strong leader. And I say all those things precisely because he's the sort of person you wouldn't think would need much encouragement. And it was very striking, his, his words. He said, he just, he just opened up. He said, thank you, that's so timely. He opened up with his own weakness and frailty, just how much he needed encouragement. Strong people are one of two things. They're either faking it or they're strong in Christ. That's their strength and they need to hear of him. So don't think there are some people who don't need the encouragement. Can I dare a theory here? God's leaders are always weak people. Here's my theory. It is always the heralds of the light who seem to be most often surrounded by the darkness. Now, why is that? Well, I think verse 16 puts us on to something. Now, try to get the logic here. It is not angels that he helps, but weak people. Okay, it's not angels he helps, but weak people. And so, in order to help them, he had to become like them. Right? See that logic? To help weak people, he had to be like them. Yep, that's how God's salvation works. Now, think. God could have appointed angels to preach the gospel to the world. That sounds quite a good idea, doesn't it? Get rid of the heresy problem, one go, wouldn't you? Bye-bye liberal theology, we're getting it <laughs> undiluted. So that seems a very good plan. Get angels to do it. Don't get me to do it. Don't get others who are weak to do it. Get angels. But he doesn't. Why? Because 
angels would never have the same sympathy with suffering, weak sinners. Our weakness and frailty actually means we can be like Christ in a way angels can't. We can be merciful and compassionate, able to help those who are themselves weak and being tempted. And that, I find, is like sunshine on a frosty despair I sometimes feel. Because in Christian leadership, I think more than anywhere else, you feel this sharp dichotomy, this tension between the gospel that we live by and proclaim that's so beautiful, and you know what I'm going to say, don't you? State of my own heart. And so if you've got any self-awareness, any time you stand up publicly, you must be thinking, who on earth am I to be doing this? And what if they knew how weak and useless and feeble I am? Has God got the wrong guy here? It feels like it. No. No. Don't think that. Thought, thinking that sort of thing can... It can drive you to despair or want to run away because you think, I can't do this. It feels like a weight of hypocrisy here. It can become too hard to deal with. And so it can actually harden you because you don't dare think about that. I'd better just get on with it. Don't think about my heart at all anymore. No. Weakness is a qualification. God works by weak people. And you know, I think there's even more for us here. For Christ was weak, but without sin. We sinners, we sinners, we have to know grace. And that means we have to know weakness and brokenness. Because if you don't, if you're not weak and broken, well, you don't need grace, do you? And so before you can be a merciful leader, who can identify with people, you have to be weak. You have to be broken. Then you're a person of grace. Can I flip that round? Let's flip that on its head. What if? What if you're always capable? What if you're always capable, you always think of yourself as capable? If you refuse to be or to be seen as weak, well, I think one of two things will happen. I think you'll become merciless. Working so hard at being wise and strong, you will not tolerate fools and weaklings. They're a waste of your precious time. You will become a hard-hearted superhero. Quite the opposite of Christ. And unhelped, people will be battered down by your pitiless, relentless brilliance. They will be beaten down and spiritually hurt by your slickness. Well, the other way it can go is this. If you're able to be capable, you can think like this. You can think, hey, look, I'm able to be perfectly capable, so they're able to be capable. Right? I mean, if I can pull myself together, so can they. Can't they? No. No, they can't. 
People are not always capable, and particularly people are not able to shake off sin by themselves. They don't have that in them. And if you think they are capable, and they're not shaking off their sin, you'll just order them to. Get on with it. You've got some sin to get rid of. You're capable, you're grown up, get on with it. And so you will be cruel. And you'll get angry with your people when they don't do it because they can't. You'll begin to despise your weak people. And either way, it started because you don't admit you're weak. Perhaps you don't admit they're weak. You've got into a mindset where you, perhaps nobody, needs grace. People need to see that you, that we, need grace. They need to see that we are dependent. And the more that we see it as well, the more compassionate we will be as leaders. The more like our merciful high priest, who is filled with pity when you stumble. So, he's become like us in every way in order to be a merciful high priest. Let's move on to this second theme. He also becomes like us in every way in order to be our faithful high priest. That's the second main thing going on here. And there are really two parts to that faithful high priest idea, which is in verses 17 and 18. First is this, verse 17. He makes propitiation for the sins of the people. He makes atonement. So he makes the perfect all-covering sacrifice for our sin. And then, having made that on the altar of the cross, he ascends as the true high priest, as the, as the high priest in Jerusalem would go into the Holy of Holies in the temple and offer the blood there on the Day of Atonement. So he, the great true high priest, goes into the reality of which that was a copy. This is Hebrews 8 and 9. He goes and takes the blood of his sacrifice into the true sanctuary, which is not built by human hands, into heaven itself, there to appear before us on our behalf. But, his priestly work doesn't stop there. See, what was going on there was through that work of sacrifice and taking the sacrifice before his father in the ascension, that was all about establishing a relationship where he can, get this, ongoingly help us. This is verse 18. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's present tense there. That's what he does now. He helps those who are weak, suffering, tempted. Are you weak, suffering, tempted? Wow. Look, we, we talked a good deal about joy in the last couple of days and about the importance of joy. But can I add a qualification here? Joy is absolutely not something you can summon up from within yourself. Go, I'm feeling a bit down, a Mars bar might do the trick. That's not Christian joy, that's blood sugar levels. Okay? 
Christian joy is that. Now, here's how it works. Here's how Christian joy works. And I hope this will be an experiential exercise. Okay. Our hearts are shackled and burdened. Now, when you are feeling cold and cloddish, do you know that experience? Think. Right then, right then, your very coldness moves the heart of our great high priest towards you with compassion. Your very coldness elicits his prayers. And so he pours his prayers into the ears of the most loving father. It is your very coldness that has elicited his prayers. And when you see that, you're going to go, oh, wow. Even my sin seems to elicit more mercy. He's so good. And then, then, looking to Jesus in his graciousness, the joy comes. Now, I think this sunny, radiant truth about Christ as our great high priest has been rather lost in Protestant circles. And I wonder if it's partly wrapped up with the Reformation stand for the priesthood of all believers, that there is no man on earth who stands between us and God as mediators. And so we've developed a sort of priest phobia. I mean, a priest, we think, is a funny thing, a sort of strange frontier thing who dresses up in the drawing room curtains. So not something we're very familiar with, but, but this priest phobia has an unnecessary fallout side effect that we can come to think there's no mediator between us and God. Or if there is one, it's me. And so I stand alone, naked, <laughs> on my own merits before God. And then the anxiety really kicks in. Now, if that's how it is for every Christian, how much worse is it for the Christian leader? Because it's not just in Anglican circles. In Christian leadership everywhere, if you're a leader, people want to make you a priest, a mediator between them and God. Right? That's not just an Anglican thing. Anglicans just wear the clothes to prove it. So, the thing is, the difficulty is, because like Christ, we are trying to help those who are being tempted, we can find very easily we take on that role. So, yeah, I am the mediator. The mediator. And when that, of course, it's a subconscious thing. Of course, no one's going to be deliberately doing that, really. But when we start getting into that, thinking, I'm the mediator here, then I start having to be the Christ. I have to then, well, I suppose I have to be sinless, don't I? And so I start finding I cannot actually admit to my own sinfulness. I'm sinless, and by the way, so is my family. <laughs> my kids, they're perfect. You shouldn't have seen what they were doing in the car five minutes ago. But I, And so what happens is, once again, we're walking down this road towards compassionless, pitiless leadership because I've got to be perfect and I'm starting to develop what will probably only grow this chasm between real sinful needy me and perfect slick respectable public me 
And that all heads towards spiritual winter for both us and our churches. Friends, we do not have to stand on our own, either before people or before God. We stand in Christ. He is our great and most compassionate high priest. And we have a high priest who has atoned for us and who on that basis now prays for us with a total assurance. And so what it means is this. When we are faithless, he is faithful. When we are weak, he is strong. And when we don't even have it within ourselves to pray, he is at the right hand of God interceding for us. See, I bring up that. I mean, Hebrews 7 is even stronger, isn't it? Hebrews 7, 25 says, he lives to make intercession for us now. (laughs) That's what he loves to do for his beloved people. He lives to make intercession for us. Constantly caring for us. Now, I mentioned the prayer because I think sometimes it is our failings make us hesitate to come to God. Sometimes it's just that life deals you a smash blow and you feel, I simply don't have it within me to pray. What happens then? I just can't pray. Where do you stand with God then? I can't do it. For whatever reason, right then, we can say with poor suffering Job, even now my intercessor is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend. As my eyes pour out tears to God. On behalf of a man, he pleads with God as a man speaks for his all-powerful, all-glorious, all-compassionate. Brothers and sisters, at all times, we have such a friend in heaven. At all times. And think his, his ears are those of a bridegroom, always open to the cries of his beloved, open to the weak, to the stumbling, He has suffered and he has bled for us. He's died for us. And he has not changed. That compassion that led him to the cross is still in him. Nothing could stop all that heart going out to us. Now does that, when you see his heart, does that not make your heart and your prayers go out to him? Our marvellous, victorious, heart-winning high priest. Let's pray to him now. Oh, Jesus. Oh, we belittle you every day. We make you out to be so much colder, so much smaller than you are. Oh, your compassion wins us. Thank you for your great heart, the express image of your Father's heart. Thank you that you are so merciful to us who fail. Thank you that you live now to intercede for us.
us. You love to hear us and you don't turn us away ever. Oh, as we gaze on you, please do you make us like you, merciful and compassionate to others. And may people around us then see in us a reflection of the most divine, otherwise inexplicable mercy. And may Jesus be glorified. Jesus, we love you. Father, thank you for sending him. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Leadership Podcast. We hope what you've heard today spurs you on in your walk with the Lord. If you're encouraged by today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or colleague or leaving a review on your podcast app to help others find us. If you'd like to engage further with us on anything you've heard today, we'd love to hear from you. You'll find us on any major social media platform, at Living Leaders, or visit our website, www.livingleadership.org, where you'll also find more support and resources to help you live in Christ joyfully and serve Him faithfully. God bless.